This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. This week, the United States labeled China as a currency manipulator. It's a major escalation in the trade war between these two countries. Three decades ago, something very similar happened with a different economic rival. Back then, both Donald Trump and China were watching, and they both learned valuable lessons from what happened. For the U.S., it learned how to potentially get what it wants. And for China, it learned exactly what it wants to avoid. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Friday, August 9th. In a lot of ways, what's happening with China now is reminiscent of what happened between the U.S. and Japan three decades ago. So the early 1980s in both Japan and the U.S. was this sort of very interesting time where the U.S. was doing fairly badly against Japan, which was at the time really doing very well. Mike Bird covers markets and the economy out of Hong Kong. The U.S. started running trade deficits. It was uh, exporting less abroad than it was importing from abroad. And a lot of that stuff, the stuff that the U.S. was importing, came from Japan. Everywhere you looked, you saw Japanese goods that hadn't really been on the market before. Cars is one of the big ones. So companies like Toyota and Honda and Nissan, electronic goods, microwaves, radios, televisions, etc., And you had the first real significant economic challenge to the U.S. coming in the form of Japan. So it was a period of U.S., at least the perceptions of U.S. decline. What was sort of the tone coming out of the United States toward Japan at that time? So you had things like, there was a 1979 book published. It was very popular called Japan as Number One, which is basically discussing the prospect that Japan would at some point become the world's largest economy, which despite having a considerably smaller population than the United States, seemed at the time to be a real possibility. And when people talked about Japan as number one, it wasn't really just an interest in the Japanese economy. It was this fear of the U.S., what happens to the U.S. when the U.S. is number two. As a response to that fear, people organized by American campaigns. And in places like Detroit, the auto manufacturing center of the country, there were smash-a-Toyota days where people would take baseball bats and sledgehammers and smash Japanese-made vehicles. These events sometimes made the news. We've got Tim Donovan here taking his uh, frustrations out on this 78 Toyota. This is all in good fun. It's sponsored by... During this time, President Ronald Reagan imposed tariffs on Japanese goods. And someone else became vocal about Japan and trade, too. Some of Donald Trump's earliest forays into U.S. politics concern Japan and U.S. trade competitiveness and, you know, the perception that the U.S. was losing out 
Donald Trump, he talked to Oprah about this in the 80s. make it impossible. They come over here, they sell their cars, their VCRs, they knock the hell out of our companies. And hey, I have tremendous respect for the Japanese people. I mean, you can respect somebody that's beating the hell out of you, but they are beating the hell out of this country. In fact, in 1987, Donald Trump spent nearly $100,000 on these print newspaper adverts that said, Japan and other nations were laughing at the United States that they've been taking advantage of the US. That said, let's not let our great country be laughed at anymore. And you can feel exactly the sort of political campaigning that Donald Trump won the US election on in 2016, coming through even there 30 years earlier. It was a real sort of tub-thumping issue at the time. Donald Trump, I think, was tapping in already then to this form of economic nationalism. One of the things that Donald Trump and others were saying in the 1980s is that the Japanese were not playing fair. They were doing something to get ahead, manipulating their currency. There is no doubt that during the 1970s, the Japanese government preferred to keep the Japanese yen weak. And one of the reasons that you'd prefer to keep your currency weak if you're trying to sell a lot of things abroad is that goods are priced in yen, effectively. A a Toyota car is priced in yen. It's made by people who earn in yen. The components were sold in yen. So if the yen is weak relative to the dollar, the price of that car to an American consumer is going to fall. It's going to become cheap relative to an American car. Manipulating the yen to suppress its value was one of the big reasons that Japan's exports took off, which makes sense. If you were an average American who wanted to buy a car you might have gone for the cheaper Japanese Toyota over the more expensive U.S.-made Ford. And while Japan was holding the value of the yen low, the value of the American dollar was rising. At the time, investors from all over the world were buying up dollars, and therefore driving the value of the dollar up. The strong dollar hurt American manufacturers that were trying to sell their products overseas, What they sold was now really expensive compared to what other countries with lower currency values, countries like Japan, were also selling. So what you ended up with is the U.S. government coming to the conclusion that there had to be some sort of breaking point here. And Japan being the main culprit of this, they wanted to find some sort of deal with Japan where Japan would agree to stop devaluing. It would agree to strengthen the yen. Strengthening its currency was not something that Japan was eager to do. Doing so would hurt the very thing that drove its big rise, exports. And so the U.S. had to look for what leverage it had that would bring Japan to the table. It was an unusual situation because you had a lot of fierce economic competition and a lot of concern about the the rise of Japan as an economic power in the U.S. But Japan was a U.S. ally. Japan... It lives under the U.S. security umbrella. It has no military. It has a self-defense force, but nothing beyond that. So it's completely reliant on security support from the United States. So uh, the U.S. was able to exercise pressure over Japan along those lines. In addition to this pressure on Japanese national security, the U.S. also added economic pressure, threatening to put more tariffs on Japanese goods. And so... Backed into a corner. In September 1985, the Japanese finance minister, Noboru Takashita, he snuck out. He left his house wearing golf shoes. He went and played nine holes of golf. And instead of finishing off the second nine, he snuck away. 
He got on a plane, he went to New York to the Plaza Hotel, which is, of course, what this new framework, the Plaza Accord, was named for, and Japan agreed to strengthen the yen. The U.S. got what it wanted, and almost immediately, things did not look good for Japan. For the Japanese economy, the effect was pretty immediate and pretty severe. So uh, between 1985 and 1988, the yen just about doubles in value against the dollar. So if you think of that in terms of the products that Japan was selling, imagine a Honda. To a U.S. buyer, that Honda car is now basically twice as expensive as it was before. That has the sort of effects that you'd imagine it would. It's harder for Japanese exporters to engage in the same practices. U.S. goods are also more popular in Japan because they're suddenly cheaper to Japanese consumers. There were other things that hurt Japan's economy, too. Once the government stopped artificially suppressing the value of the yen, its value suddenly rose dramatically. So, to soften the blow of a more expensive yen, it did some things that wound up backfiring. One issue was Japan's decision to lower interest rates. Lower rates meant more people took out loans to buy property, which fueled a big real estate bubble. House prices going through the roof. Especially in Tokyo, the estimate was that the land the Imperial Gardens of Japan were on was worth the same as all the land in the state of California at one point. The real estate bubble was crazy. And by the early 1990s, it burst. Um, And in some ways, Japan has never entirely recovered from that. It's called the lost decade. And really, to be frank, it it was two or you can even make the argument for three lost decades now. Japan was just completely broken. Nobody's afraid of Japan being number one anymore. That's just not a realistic prospect, a lot of which is put down by economists to the decisions made around the Plaza Accord. Which brings us back to today and the current showdown between the U.S. and China. That's after the break. This episode is brought to you by ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people, for employees, for developers, and even your customers, removing frustration and supercharging productivity. On our intelligent platform, AI isn't just a promise. It's happening today. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Tap the banner to learn more or visit servicenow.com slash AI for people. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. Hiring? With Indeed, your search is over. With over 350 million global monthly visitors and candidate matching technology, Indeed helps you find quality candidates fast. As a listener of this show, Indeed is giving you a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash thejournalpod. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back. In this current trade war, both China and the U.S. take lessons from what happened in the 1980s. In the 1980s, and I remember this. President Trump still brings it up. You were victims of trading abuse, big trading abuse, where they were dumping all sorts of competitors all over the place. And Ronald Reagan stepped in. And he still cares about currency values and how a strong dollar isn't necessarily a good thing. Just yesterday, he tweeted, quote, As your president, one would think that I would be thrilled with our very strong dollar. I am not. 
And for China, what happened with Japan is a cautionary tale about what not to do. What happened to Japan around the Plaza Accord is actually a sort of very well-known thing among Chinese leadership in Beijing. That might sound odd, but Chinese leadership in Beijing, they spend a lot of time looking at the crises that other countries have gone through, especially countries that they think are in some ways similar to them. And the similarity that they have with Japan is they've also pursued at different times a weak currency strategy. They've wanted to export a lot. They wanted to develop the same sort of world-beating export brands that Japan had. And so when they look at the Plaza Accord, the lesson they really take for it is that you can't allow the United States to tell you where to set your currency because that will always be to the benefit of the United States and not to the benefit of the other country, whether that's China or Japan. And I think it's quite seriously informing what is happening in the trade talks at the moment, which now increasingly revolve around this debate about the Chinese currency. Technically, the yuan's sudden drop doesn't meet the formal U.S. criteria for currency manipulation. But the Treasury Department can label countries manipulators, even if they don't meet that exact definition. Why do you think China made this move to let its currency just fall? I think the the Chinese government is well aware of how President Trump feels about devaluation. The trade talks were already in slightly dire straits, but it's not just to, you know, wind up the White House. There is an economic reason to allow the yuan to decline, and that's because it offsets some of the impacts of the tariffs. So A tariff, essentially, imagine a tariff on Chinese-made washing machine, and you're applying a 10% tariff to it. That price goes up 10%. Now, if China allows the yuan to weaken, it offsets some of that. So if the yuan weakens 10 or 12%, it's offsetting the whole increase in price uh, that's applied by the tariff. So you can push back in this way. Using the yuan in this way is one of the things they've still got left in their sort of arsenal ways they can engage in this sort of tit-for-tat trade relationship. So where does this put us in the big picture for the trade fight? Allowing the yuan to weaken like that is a statement that there will not be any reconciliation, that, you know, Beijing is not Tokyo. They're not going to do something just because the U.S. Treasury Department wants them to. They won't allow the U.S. government to determine Chinese economic policy. People talked about the possibility that they would be able to get back around the negotiating table and they'd find some sort of deal and this would get sorted out somehow. That possibility now, to be frank, is gone. Um, They may find a deal at some point. You can't hedge that far ahead into the future, but it seems extremely unlikely that they'll manage to get around the table and agree a deal by then. When these tariffs come in, it's been very clear, especially over the last week, that both sides are now settling in for the long haul. Following the yuan's sudden fall this week, global markets swung and U.S. stocks had their worst one-day drop of the year. Central banks in countries that depend on Chinese commerce in New Zealand, Thailand, and India lowered interest rates in response to U.S.-Chinese trade tensions. Those tensions aren't going away anytime soon. By Friday, the markets had somewhat recovered, but the U.S. and China remain in a stalemate. 
and experts fear the continuing tension could cause a bigger global economic downturn. That's all for today, Friday, August 9th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. I'm your host, Ryan Knudsen. Kate Leinbaugh is your other host, who was on vacation this week. Kate, we hope you had a great time. We're produced by Ricky Nevetsky, Sarah Platt, and Willa Rubin. Our senior producer is Pia Gedkari. Annie Rose Strasser is our supervising producer. Griffin Tanner is our engineer. Our executive producer is Gerard Cole. Our music this week comes from Haley Shaw and Bobby Lord from Gimlet. Additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. Editing help this week from Nazanin Rafsanjani, Anthony Galloway, Peter Landers, and Phil Izzo. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday.